Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. It's the 4th of February, 1964. Once dubbed the worst woman in Sydney, Kate Lee lies unresponsive in a hospital bed at St Vincent's in Darlinghurst. She suffered a severe stroke just a few days earlier and she's about to take her final breath. But the twilight years of Kate Lee's life have not been marked by the debauchery and violence of her heyday. There's no more sly grog, No diamonds and fur, no more cocaine, and no more razor gangs. She was once one of the wealthiest and most powerful underworld figures in the country. But as Kate Lee slips away at St Vincent's Hospital, the 82-year-old has lost almost everything. From changes to alcohol laws, increased police powers, and a rather unwelcome knock at the door from the taxman. Kate Lee will die bankrupt and impoverished. But she hadn't quite lost everything. Kate Lee never moved away from the pocket of East Sydney she once ran, and locals never forgot about their infamous Auntie Kate. Despite her criminal past, ties to violent razor fights and deadly shootouts, some 700 mourners packed out St Peter's Catholic Church in Kate's Surrey Hills for her funeral. Among the attendees, Kate's longtime rival, her once ferocious enemy, Tilly Devine. And though it may have seemed the ruthless antics of Kate and Tilly were put to bed, at their prime, they were giants, equal parts revered and feared by those who crossed them. Long before their time would be up, these forced to be reckoned with women left an indelible mark on one of Sydney history's most notorious chapters, The Razor Wars. This is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. My name is Emma Gillespie, and this month we're examining the life and crimes of Kate Lee and Tilly Devine. On the last episode, we heard how Tilly journeyed from the impoverished alleyways of London to dominate Sydney's brothel underworld. This time, we're shifting focus to Kate Lee, how she rose to command the illicit supply of drugs and alcohol in East Sydney to become one of the country's most infamous organised crime figures. If you asked the punters of the 20s and 30s if they thought the likes of Kate Lee would live to see 80, they might have called you crazy. And yet, the worst woman in Sydney somehow endured. So what gave Kate Lee her staying power? Where did she come from? How did she make a name for herself? And what of her extraordinary feud with Tilly Devine? 
I'm speaking with Dr Lee Straw to learn more about the original crime matriarch of Darlinghurst, who she was, how she found her way from central western New South Wales to the gritty heart of Sydney and all its vices. Lee is an academic, historian and writer of The Worst Woman in Sydney, a biography of Sydney underworld figure Kate Lee. Lee, I'd love to start out by asking about Kate and her early life. Where did she come from and how did she become such an important part of Sydney's underworld through the 20s and 30s? Kate Lee was a country girl and so she came from Dubbo. The family had been there for a while and uh, she was one of 13 children, so quite a large Irish Catholic country family. And there's always an element of when there's so many kids in a family, you're going to get a couple of rat bags in there. So she and a couple of her brothers were kind of at times left a little bit unsupervised in the sense of wondering about the streets, catching up with people. Police were a little bit concerned about what they were doing at a young age. There was an element of where they were sort of experimenting a little bit with a sort of low-level thieving. And then Kate, Kathleen, as she's known, Kathleen Bean, was a very beautiful young girl. She had striking blue eyes and a really fierce personality from a very young age. So very headstrong, very confident. And it happens that in her teenage years, she starts to become, it's alleged, associated with a couple of prostitutes, sex workers, as we would say these days, in and around Dubbo. Whether or not she actually had any involvement in that, we don't know. But in those days, you know, late 19th century, you're looking at the 1880s, 1890s, any kind of association with women in that profession wasn't a very good thing and it was socially looked down upon. So in her teenage years, she comes to the attention of police and she goes through the courts and she then also has her parents who say, we can't look after her, she's too much trouble. And so she's sent away to Parramatta Girls School. And as we know, that was a pretty harsh place for teenage girls to be sent to. So that's where Kate finds herself in her teenage years and it's not until she's 18 that she gets out of the institution. What do we know about Kate's parents? I mean, it sounds as though she got caught up in the wrong crowd or her brothers were getting mixed up in the wrong types of things. Were her parents ever affiliated with any of that stuff? Not that we know of. There's nothing in terms of her parents having ever engaged in sort of low-level thieving or anything more mid to high range in the criminal world. It just really seems to be that you've got a large country family and she just became, as the authorities referred to her, a wayward girl, as they would refer to pretty headstrong and troublesome girls at the time. Speaking of wayward girls, Parramatta, can you take me into that world a little bit, that sort of pseudo-school meets juvenile prison? What were the conditions like for a young girl there? If you can imagine as a teenage girl, you've already got the stigma of being in a court where you've got police officers alleging that you are associating with prostitutes, you've got questions around your family life, and then she's come from country New South Wales and she's sent to Parramatta. So she's not been to the city before, so that for her was initially a bit of a shock. And if you imagine going to Parramatta, and that is an institution, it is not a place that's meant to be a nice institution or somewhere that you would be shown love and care and actually sort of treated with the sense of where you are a part of society. It was a way of sort of reprogramming young girls and teenagers into being good women. And the idea of a good woman is that you knew your domestic duties, that you would marry, you'd have children, you'd set up a 
what was socially acceptable as a family life at that time. But in order to do that, there were such strict rules in the institution. The girls worked hard. Kate worked in the laundry, which worked over many long hours through the day. It was pretty arduous work. And it singled her out again as, you know, you're not like the other girls in society. We've got to work you really hard so that you learn your place. And there's many stories. Kate never talked about her time at the institution, but there's many stories that have come out since about the kind of abuse that the girls suffered. And it was both physical and mental abuse. And so I think that explains a great deal of where Kate went when she came out of the institution because it was such a regimented, hard, difficult place and also was just so demeaning to girls as well that she came out of that and thought no I'm going to be my own woman and I'm going to take charge of my own life which was a pretty courageous thing to do. So if the goal was to straighten out a girl like Kate then that goal was well and truly missed. Yeah it didn't really do it but you know at the same time it's like it's not surprising because if she's being outcast and she's called a wayward girl and she's told that she's not good enough in society and they're going to reprogram her, there's going to be a rebellion against that. You know, you're going to feel like, you know, I'm not going to be who you think I am or who you want me to be, sorry. I'm not going to be that person. And in fact, she kind of owns the tough young woman. So at the end of her stint at Parramatta, as you've described, she's sort of become more and more headstrong and stubborn and determined to carve out her own future. What comes next for young Kate Lee? Well, what comes next for young Kate is that she's still Kate Bean at the time and she ends up in eastern Sydney, the inner eastern suburbs of Sydney, very working class, very tough streets. And so in order to, I guess, survive in those times, this is, you know, looking at turn of the 20th century, okay? So the issue of poverty is a problem in Eastern Sydney. The rentals are certainly very high. And then you've got a lot of people crammed into various terrace housing and kind of dilapidated structures at the time. Initially, she's around kind of Paddington, then she moves to Surrey Hills and Darlinghurst, and she ends up taking up with a fella called Jack Lee. And it's from Jack Lee that she takes the name Lee, but she anglicizes it because, in fact, Jack Lee was L-double-E rather than the L-E-I-G-H that Kate takes on. And so she takes up this young Jack Lee. They are married, but before they are married, she has already found herself to be pregnant. And so there's another element of where she's trying to kind of create a family life, but it's a very difficult thing, okay? If you are an unmarried young woman at that time. Again, that's another stigma that's placed on Kate's shoulders. But this Jack Lee's a bit of a character as well. You know, he's been dabbling in a bit of low-level crime and he's also been charged and convicted with possession of opium. So that's the kind of world she finds herself in. As a late teen, as initially an unmarried pregnant woman, and then she marries Jack and she has her daughter Eileen. What happens to Jack? Well, Jack actually kind of is a bit of a drifter and he takes off on Kate. He doesn't stick around. He's not there to look after Eileen. There's issues around whether or not he has more of a connection to the opium problems of the time or whether or not he's just this kind of low-level crook. But it doesn't really stick around. And Kate then takes up with some other people in the area and a couple of friends that she has for a number of years. What was Kate like as a mother? Can you tell me a little bit about her relationship with Eileen? a very fraught relationship over the years. They were similar in many respects, but also there was the tensions 
of Kate's later career in organised crime and Eileen was partially involved in that. But I've certainly listened to locals and also listened to interviews that people have conducted with members of Kate's family and they actually said that she and Eileen didn't get on very well later on in life. It was very difficult for Eileen as well when Kate was establishing herself because in establishing herself as a businesswoman, it's not an easy place for a young kid to be. And so Eileen had to kind of look after herself in some respects. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Emma Gillespie. I'm speaking with Lee Straw about Kate Lee, the worst woman in Sydney. You've sort of touched on this already in terms of those inner city Sydney suburbs that were, you know, havens for kind of organised crime and slums essentially. But today we know those areas to be some of the most expensive parts of the country. Can you take me back to sort of the King's Cross, Darlinghurst area in the 1920s and give me a bit of a sense of what it was like, what was going on, what kinds of people were hanging around those parts? Okay, so you're going back to the... 20s, 1920s, what you're imagining is that these are the kind of areas where people avoided, okay? You didn't go into those areas unless you had to. If you lived in the areas, if you're working class and you work in the factories or you live in the area, then it's just part and parcel of life. And there was a real community feel to the areas too. Woolloomooloo, Surrey Hills, Darlinghurst, the locals looked out for each other. But on the outside of that, there was a lot of characterization of these areas as bad places you don't go into them at night time and actually in truth you didn't want to go into the areas at night time because there were gangs because there was violence and there were houses where sly grog was being sold and there was cocaine deals that were being done on the streets and in houses as well so they were pretty rough parts of the city and they were rough they were not gentrified as we see has happened in the suburbs in recent years so some of the structures were pretty awful in terms of houses that were almost falling down the woods houses especially were kind of dilapidated with many families living in one residence itself so you've got a lot of poor people packed into the area you've got factories You've got the pubs that are in the area. You've got the streets where the young gangs and the youths are wandering about the streets as their kind of territory. And then you've got the young women and the the women who are working the streets too, that they have their territories, their patches in terms of the sex work that they were involved in. So they're pretty rough streets, very, very rough. Going there now into Surrey Hills and Darlinghurst, I think you have to stretch your imagination just a little bit to really imagine what it could have been like a century ago. But I reckon there's parts of Woolloomooloo that I sort of think, actually, there's a little bit of the old still exists there, which I kind of like. Yeah, we actually, our office is in Woolloomooloo and I, um, depending on where I park my car some days, I'll take a long way around because it's, <laughs> it's not that hard to imagine, but you're absolutely yep. right. Yeah. When did laws around drinking change and how did the sly grog business emerge? So the laws around drinking changed during World War One. There'd been a bit of pressure from the late 19th century from the temperance societies, actually just from really worried community members about the social problems of drinking and alcoholism and the effects that it had on families in particular. But the First World War made things worse because you had soldiers who had come back from the war. And one of the things, not all of them, but some of them did, is that they would drink to excess to forget some of the traumatic memories of what they had actually gone through. So you got the soldiers who've come back from the war or during the war when they've been repatriated created. And so that exaggerates an already a situation which was seen as problematic. So during the First World War, we see 
the legislation that comes in to close the pubs early. So the pubs close by the end of the First World War, the pubs have closed by 6pm in the evening. And the idea is, is that if you can't get to the pub, then you can't keep drinking. But what happens is that rather than us having prohibition like they had in the United States, we actually had referendums on prohibition. We didn't go the route of prohibition. We decided to close the pubs early. The idea that you could close the pubs early and people would stop drinking left the door open to the black market. So it leaves it open to sly grog selling to people who were opportunists who think, well, I can actually make a bit of money because people still want to drink in the evening. And that is where Kate Lee stepped in. She saw an opportunity. She said many times over through the years that she was merely giving the community a service that it wanted, that it wasn't anything to do with crime. She's very careful in how she portrayed herself. And so she starts to dabble in a bit of sly grog selling and then realises that you can sell knockoff booze in the evening and make a lot of money from it. And so she does that from the end of the, really you're looking at sort of into the 1920s that she really takes that up and it starts to really take off by the middle of the 1920s. What does that tell us about Kate's character, that she had this obviously criminal savvy but also a kind of a business savvy that she saw this opportunity and went for it? Yeah, I think she was a smart businesswoman. You can say on the right or the wrong side of law, however you might say it, she certainly was a businesswoman and she learned how to be a businesswoman on the streets of Eastern Sydney. She was watching what was going on. She's got the police officers that she talks to, the pub owners that she can have a chat with. She's a part of that community and she creates an image of herself as a community member in order to be accepted by that community because the locals are really tight-knit. So if you're doing the wrong thing in Darlinghurst or Surrey Hills or Woolloomooloo, the locals won't accept you. They just won't have anything to do with you. So she markets an image of herself as giving something back to the community. Yeah, it's knockoff booze and, yes, she's charging them way more than they would have to pay in the pub, but she still realises that these are working-class people who have been hurt the most by the legislation. And that's the argument in some of the working-class communities of the time is that, It was working class people, particularly factory workers and others, who were most discriminated because the idea was is that they had to drink less, that they were drinking too much. But drinking, it was happening across society. So she was making the argument that she was giving back to the working class. Larry Ryder is a journalist and author of Razor, the book that would go on to inspire the fourth season of the critically acclaimed Australian crime drama series Underbelly Razor. Larry says after a stint in jail... Kate realised just how she was going to make it big in East Sydney. She was in jail for giving a false alibi to a fellow who robbed a railway station in inner city. It's where the carriage works are now. And her lover, she lived with him in Frog Hollow in Surrey Hills. She stood up in court and said, Your Honour, he couldn't have done these things because he was with me at home in Frog Hollow and of course that was proven to be wrong. So she was sent to jail for a number of years and when she was in jail in 1916 she read that all the pubs were closing at six and so she worked out a plan whereby she would use the back rooms of existing terraces or a factory or her own home and she would go to the breweries and buy wholesale alcohol, deliver it in a horse-drawn carriage to these places, and she would sell it at a markup after six o'clock at night. What prominence did a name like Kate Lee have at that time? Increasing prominence, especially for people who wanted to get a drink after six. She was known as mum, and you'd knock on the door and you'd say, is mum in? 
And the fellow who opened the door would say, yes, mum's in. That was the password. So in they'd go. And it wasn't only illegal alcohol that she was selling there. She was also selling cocaine because cocaine had been banned. It was used as a, a nerve soother, like Bex or Vincent's APC or something like that that you could buy over the counter in the chemist. And that was banned as well. So she was selling adulterated cocaine and she would also fence goods that had been stolen from houses or from the big department stores. She'd sell them to people out of her slag grog shops. So she had a good little operation going that she ran herself and she had a gang as well, as did Tilly, to keep order and to keep the standover gangs at bay. Because as soon as a criminal entrepreneur started to be successful, you'd have all these gangs coming in saying, look, if you want to continue doing this, you're going to have to pay us money. And the poor person who was running the place couldn't exactly go to the police to complain. So, yeah, Kate was famous. She was a larger-than-life character. She was quite short, but she was very thick-set, and she wore big floppy hats, expensive perfume, rings on every finger, a fur coat in summertime. Tilly did a lot of those things too. But she was a sight to behold. She had a really rough voice and she swore like a trooper. She was rough as can be, but she also had a kind side. A lot of people said good things about her at the time. She was seen as a different person to Tilly. Tilly was never a beloved person in the underworld. She was feared. But Kate, I think people liked her and she was she had a kindliness that Tilly didn't have. Did that have anything to do with Tilly being a Brit? No, it was just her nature. She had a hair-trigger temper. She was very pretentious. She believed that she was amazingly beautiful and that she was a class above everybody else, even though, you know, she came from the most impoverished background. But she would carry dogs with her and she would wear the fur coat and all of the rings. She would have her hair done a couple of times a week. She'd wear a lot of makeup, expensive shoes, all of these things. So, She didn't look like a down-and-out. She was one of the most stylish women in Sydney. Trying to get our heads around the idea of prohibition of alcohol, difficult concept for a lot of Aussies to grasp. Mm. Thinking back to this 6pm deadline, did the government and law enforcement anticipate the black market that erupted to erupt? How were they anticipating monitoring the use of alcohol after a certain time of day? You know, I don't think they thought about it. I think they thought it would get them votes in 1916 at the state government election, and they just put up policies that they thought were going to be popular in the zeitgeist of the time. And there was a movement to stop the violence in the streets and the public drunkenness and so forth. So he said, all right, we're going to shut the pubs at 6 o'clock. But it was the same with, I mean, these criminal entrepreneurs like Tilly and Kate could not have survived without the new laws. They just took advantage of there being no more cocaine readily available. They took advantage of the fact that you couldn't get a drink after six o'clock. They realised Australians were going to do that anyway. And the politicians obviously didn't take that into consideration until Ian Kate just took advantage of the situation of the laws, opportunistically made lots of money out of it. The feud between Kate Lee and Tilly Devine is folklore. But Mm. where did it all begin? Why did they hate each other so much? Because they were the two dominant gangsters first, and there were women second. It was so important to them. In a town where there were no shortage of crooks and serious gangsters, they were the numbers one and two, and they were both 
kind of equal in, in that. And they loved the notoriety and the fame and they loved people tipping their hats to them when they walked down the street. It was important to them to dominate each other. And although the criminality that they both involved in didn't really overlap, Tilly being prostitution and Kate being sly grog and drug dealing, there was no sort of competition there. It was just the fact that they were women and each one wanted to dominate the other. Next time on True Crime Conversations, Lee Straw and Larry Ryder tell us how two women at the top, dominating Sydney's organised crime, sly grog and cocaine businesses, turned on each other. When the gangster's new weapon of choice turned the streets of East Sydney blood red, as Razorhurst was born. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast produced by Gia Moylan. I'm Emma Gillespie, and I'll be back next week continuing our four-part series on the Razor Gangs of East Sydney and the crime queens at the centre of them, Tilly Devine and Kate Lee.